All right. Well, welcome, church. How you guys doing this evening? Good? Ready to hear the word? Awesome. That's what I like to hear. If you could turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. And I'm going to be talking about something that has been a long-standing, uh, I think, debate, I think, ever since the gospel went forth. And that really is the relationship between faith and works. Now, I think uh, oftentimes our human nature tends to like to go to one extreme or the other. You, you tend to either have those that are so dependent upon grace that their life has little evidence that they are actually a, a child of God. They think that they just have license to do whatever they want because, well, I'm saved by faith. And then you have the other side of it where sometimes people can take it to such an extent that they believe that they need works to actually be saved. And oftentimes what happens is it makes them incredibly miserable because they figure out very quickly that they can't earn their own salvation. It's just impossible. They can't do it. Now what's wonderful about James is that I believe he brings these two things into a very wonderful balance. And it's a balance that Paul finds throughout his epistles and his letters. And it's also a balance uh, that Jesus finds in his gospels. Uh, that they're held in this perfect tension. Because what we find is that they're actually both necessary. Though, yes, we are saved by faith, what we also have to draw into question is, what is saving faith? What does that faith actually look like? And I think James does a great job of this. And so, uh, what you find throughout his book, uh, his letter here, this, these five short chapters is that he has a kind of a common theme and that theme is conflict it's faith versus the flesh it's sanctification versus sin it's the new nature versus the old nature he, he recognizes that these two things will always be at war so long as we're in these earthly bodies and we have that sin nature we're going to struggle against it and so what ends up being the central content of his letter is the growth of the believer it's the birth of the Christian, it's the growth of the Christian, it's the development of the Christian. And so, where Paul would answer, how is salvation experienced, and he would say, by faith alone, what James desires to answer is the question, how is true and saving faith recognized? What does it look like? And what we see here is that James says, specifically, by its fruits. What is the result of that faith? Does it actually produce something, or is it simply a name only? And so he starts off with verse 14. He says this, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Father, we just thank you for your word. God, thank you that you desire for us to know you. God, you desire for us to know uh, how we ought to act as your children. God, what you expect of us. God, that, that you're straight with us. God, you, you don't um, desire for us to be confused, but you desire for things to be clear. And so, God, I just pray that tonight you would speak through me. 
Uh, God, that you would help me to deliver your word with clarity, with understanding. Uh, God, that I would just simply take a step back and that you would teach this study. Um, God, as Paul rightly said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ in me. And so, God, I just pray that you would uh, do a wonderful work. God, would you convict, would you encourage, would you comfort? God, would you rebuke if necessary? Uh, God, that we might be pleasing to you in everything that we do. That, God, we truly would be a holy people into your name. So, God, we ask that you'd be with us. Would you speak to us? Would you give us instruction and understanding? And, God, would you reveal yourself to us through your scripture? And it's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. So what we're going to find really quick, and I just want to make sure everybody understands where this block of text kind of fits in this letter. What we're going to see is that there's actually a link, because it almost seems like James kind of just throws a bunch of things together, and they're not really connected. But as you read through it, what you often find is that they are connected. It's just maybe not right there at the uh, kind of up front. And so what we're going to see is there's actually a couple of links between this section that we're going to be focusing on, 14 through Uh, 26 and 1 through 13. There's four links. First of all, in verses 1 through 13, he illustrates that mercy is a Christian essential. And so here, what he does in 14 through 26, he attaches that mercy is essential to faith. So he's connecting those two ideas. Secondly, uh, the first 13 verses, uh, faith is a common characteristic of every Christian. This is something that every believer has. Uh, It's just a fact. And then what he goes on to state is really more of a question, and that question is, what is faith? What exactly is it? Then there's a third link. James, in the first 13 verses, stresses uh, the law and the Christian experience. And so, in the latter half of the chapter, he seeks to essentially answer the question, How does this teaching fit into the Christian understanding of salvation by faith? And then here's the fourth link. And he ultimately kind of, this is one of the last things that he talks about, is the law when it comes to the topic of judgment and that we are saved from it by faith in Christ. So what the link is in the second part of this chapter is, How important is it then that we know actually what faith is if our entire eternity rides on understanding it correctly? And so that's what James is seeking to help us to understand. What actually is faith? And I think what's going to be really interesting about this section is that it kind of carries almost this dual purpose. Uh, On one hand, it's going to be incredibly encouraging for the Christian who maybe doubts their own salvation. They doubt, man, am I really a child of God? Do I really know him? And what's awesome is that James gives, or James gives this wonderful, objective standard of what faith is. And so, if you're doubting your salvation, you can look, well, what does my life look like? But here's the second side of this, is that it can also be incredibly scary, because it also means that faith is not what we make it. And that might be terrifying for some of you who are starting to look at this objective standard going, man, my life doesn't match up with this at all. And so hopefully by the end of this, uh, we'll we'll understand where we stand with God, and then we can uh, adapt accordingly. And so that's where this passage fits in James's letter. What makes faith real? How can we know that we have saving faith? And what he's going to do is he breaks this really into four illustrations. And I want you to understand the nature of the illustrations that he has. Uh, First of all, each illustration ends with a summary of the point that he's trying to make. 
Uh, Secondly, the first two illustrations are negative. The second two illustrations are positive. Uh, Thirdly, the first and last illustrations deal with our relationship towards people, manward. And then the fourth thing, the second and third illustrations deal with our relationship with God and how we are to relate our faith to the Lord. And so here's where James begins. He says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? So he begins with this imaginary person who is claiming to have faith. Now, he's not necessarily casting doubt on their faith, but he's just, a simply, he's just simply asserting that they are claiming to have faith in Christ. And so we can assume that he, they must have an impeccable account of coming to the Lord, some way that they got saved. However, we can also assume that this person does not have works. Notice what he says. If someone says he has faith, but does not have works... So he's assuming that this person does not have works. He hasn't seen any evidence to support the faith. It's completely unsupported. And so what is being drawn into question is not necessarily the man's faith, but if he actually even has faith at all, if it's even present to begin with. And so notice James is very careful to state that he says he has faith, not that he has faith. And then he asks this question. He says, can that faith Save him. And by the structure of the question, James is expecting a negative answer. Well, obviously not. You know, it's very much akin to what J- or, uh, Paul would say in Romans. You know, should we, you know, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he goes, well, certainly not. And so he's posing this question, expecting a, a negative answer. He, he's stating that he has faith. Now notice, James is setting up a very important truth here. That a claim a person makes to faith can actually be tested and gauged. It can actually be seen. It's not ambiguous. It's not subjective. It's not whatever we make it. There is actually an objective standard to faith that James lays out. There are actually things that it is and things that it is not. And so now going back to James's question, can that faith save him? Now it's important to note what James is assuming about his readers. Because I think at this point we're starting to wonder like, well wait a minute, how does this fit into Paul's teaching? Paul constantly taught, it's by grace, it's by faith, it's not by works, it's not by the flesh. It's always been about faith, it's always been about believing. Now, James, by actually asking these questions, is assuming that they would be accustomed to saving or saying salvation by faith. So, why would he ask questions about faith if that was not the means of salvation, if that was not commonly understood? So, James understands this about the people that he's talking to, that they know that salvation is by faith. And so, James is not proposing a new way of salvation. That's not what James is setting out to do. But rather, he's trying to get them to understand what by faith really means. What by faith alone genuinely means. James is also making a common assumption that was made really by all of the biblical writers. Which is that saving faith results in a distinctive life. That you actually look different. That when you get saved, you don't remain the same after the fact. It's not like you profess the name of Christ, you come to a saving knowledge of faith, and then nothing happens. You just continue doing the same old, same old. 
There's actually a different life. And so in saying works, what James is really doing is he's summing up the totality of all that should be distinct about that person after they come to faith. Does that make sense? And so, most importantly, he's laying out how we're supposed to relate to God and also how we're supposed to relate to our fellow man. Those two things are both very important. And so what James is not arguing for is faith instead of works, works instead of faith, works over faith, or even faith and works as a way of salvation. James is actually desiring to keep those things in their proper balance. Because faith is still the dominant partner in this relationship. Faith produces the works. The works do not produce the faith. It doesn't work the other way. Nor does works add anything to that faith. Faith is what produces eternal life. But what he's saying is that if you have faith that produces eternal life, it produces change in the life of the believer. And so James is stating that faith that works is faith that works. Does that make sense? Rather that faith that saves is faith that is evidenced by a transformed life. And he starts really explaining these points, or rather really just this one central point, by giving us some illustrations. And he gives the first one. He says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? So he kind of brings up a a pretty common scenario, something that I think all of us will likely um, see or have a chance to interact with, and that's just taking care of the needs of a fellow Christian, a fellow believer. Now, he's not necessarily suggesting these are the only people that we help, the only people that we do anything for. He's not saying, okay, we just take care of our own, don't bother with anybody else. That's not what he's saying, but he's simply using this as an illustration, And so what he's saying is when it's within your power to do something about it, somebody is hungry, somebody needs shelter, somebody has a need, and you can do something about it, but then instead of actually helping them, you just say, hey, hope you stay warm, don't go hungry tonight. Doesn't really do them a whole lot of good, does it? Doesn't accomplish anything. And so what I like to call this guy is the wishful thinker. Just like, yeah, you know, be warm, be filled, goodbye. I mean, I could help you, but I won't. That's essentially what he's describing. So, here's what we need to understand. This illustration illustrates two things. First of all, the practical example of a person who claims to have faith, but does not have works. Well, they claim to have faith, they claim to love the Lord, but it doesn't change the way that they interact with their fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. So it's just, well, hey, hope you stay warm. It's not accompanied by anything. Secondly, what it also illustrates is the uselessness of empty words. Unsubstantiated by any kind of action. Well, you said it. Well, that's, okay, that's great. What'd you do about it? Well, I want you to be warm and full, but I'm just not really willing to, you know, do anything to take care of that need. See, the truth is, is you really don't want them to be warm and be full if you have the resource to do that and you don't do that. You can say it all you want, but the reality is um, our actions make a poor confidant, don't they? Oftentimes our, our actions will say what we are unwilling to say. And that's exactly what is happening here. His actions are far more honest than his words. And so notice what he says next. 
So, thus, also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, notice the conclusion to the first illustration. And really what's interesting is that this carries on through the rest of his illustrations. He's very careful to use uh, a very specific word throughout a lot of them. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He consistently uses this word dead. Not alive. Not partially alive. Not limited. As in not living. The princess bride version of death does not qualify here. You cannot be mostly dead. It is completely dead. So James is stating that faith that does not work is not saving faith. That's the statement James is making. It's a very difficult statement. It's weighty. And here's why I want you to understand this. Because death throughout the Bible is always used to describe, and it really in a sense, separation from When we are dead in our trespasses and sins, it's separation from God. It's separated from God. When we are dead to our old nature, we are separated from it. We're separated from sin. Or when we die, it's separation from this earthly existence. It never once means that you're kind of partially alive. It never carries that connotation. It's not, uh, it's not really a euphemism for pseudo-life. It is always extreme as it sounds. Dead means dead. And so James is making a very bold and direct statement about this person's faith. He's saying, look, so you you can tell me that you have faith all you want, but if that doesn't equate to actual change, it says it doesn't mean anything. It's not worth anything. It doesn't save. And James is actually echoing simply what Jesus already said. Jesus said this in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. He said, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will be separate and he will separate them one from another. A shepherd divides his sheep from goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. So it's really depicting when all of us go to be the Lord, and ultimately we, we get judged. Whether we're ba- whether we're found in faith, we're found in God's grace, or found in judgment. Because we haven't believed on the only beloved Son of God. Now, notice what he says. To the people on his right hand. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, these are the righteous, Come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom uh, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in or naked and close you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he goes on, really, and I won't read anymore for sake of time, but he goes on to describe the second group, those who ultimately will be judged. And he says quite the opposite. He says, you, you didn't take care of those. And as a result, you didn't take care of me. And then he says, depart from me. And so James is simply echoing what Jesus has already said throughout the Gospels. Now notice what he says next in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith 
by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith, or do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So now he goes on, and, and he presents this hypothetical comment from uh, someone really interrupting James's point. Now I want you to understand, he, he's not being aggressive, he, he's not trying to, um, uh, you know, he, he's not desiring to be hostile to James's teaching. What he's actually presenting is kind of a hypothetical person who is really just desiring clarity on this. And what this person is presenting is essentially, well, I mean, if, okay, well, if I have the gift of unshakable faith... And they have the gift of hospitality and works and things like that. That's just the, what, how God has gifted them. You know, how can we judge them based on the gifts that, once again, were given out by God? Now, what's rather interesting is James would not be able to argue with that. that that's true. You know, we can't be judged based on our giftings because that's what God has given us. But James is not talking about faith as a, as a spiritual gift. That's not what James is addressing. James is addressing Faith that leads to salvation, something that every last believer on planet Earth has. So he is addressing faith that saves, not, not the spiritual gift. And so notice what James says. He says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He says, well, how about, how, about, how about this? How can you show me that you have faith in Christ if there's nothing that proves it? There, there's nothing that speaks to that. There's nothing about you that would say you're a child of God. How can you show me that faith? Which realistically, once again, it's kind of implying a negative answer. You can't. And he says, I will show you my faith by my works. I will show you what I believe by what I do. Now, this is oftentimes a very basic principle. I mean, think about it. We have this in our everyday lives, right? If we truly believe something, if we truly have faith in something, we act upon that belief. I mean, I'm assuming most of you pretty much just sat down in your pew without thinking about it, right? Why was that? Because you truly believed that it would hold you, that it wasn't going to break. That's why you sat down so quickly in the pew. You acted upon that thought. But if you didn't think it would hold you, if you didn't truly believe that it would hold you, no matter how much you said it would, you wouldn't sit in it. And it's a very basic principle, but it's the very principle that James is pointing out. If you believe something, you act on it. It's just the way that it is. And so thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by my Works. Words prove nothing if they're unaccompanied by action. Now notice what he uses, and this is his second illustration. He uses the demons. He says, you believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So he uses this second illustration. And I think oftentimes we forget demons and Satan himself are kind of in an actually a really an unusual position because they're actually really well positioned to know the Bible, to know truth about God. I mean, keep in mind, they're fallen angels. These were God's heavenly hosts at one point. If anybody has a, a nice deep knowledge of who God is, it would be them. And yet what he's saying is, look, even the demons believe and tremble. You know, even they believe there's one God. Doesn't mean that they're saved. 
They still continue as demons. They're not loved by God. They know nothing of the peace of God. They know only fear. That's all they know. And yet they believe in God. And yet, ultimately, they're going to be judged. Do you you see what James is laying out here? He's saying belief by itself is not sufficient. Simply believing something doesn't necessarily mean that you have saving faith. See, ultimately, what you'll see in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, says the Lord, our Lord, is one Lord. That's, That's the truth that he's referencing. But then notice the correct response to that. And you shall love the Lord your God. Well, that's the part the demons don't do. They understand the truth, but it doesn't affect the way that they live. It doesn't change their reverence for God. It doesn't change the fact that they actually don't love God. And then notice, once again, James points out the point that he's trying to make. Do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? It's devoid of life. It's perishing. There's actually a, an interesting theologian from the 1800s. He, he made a comment on this passage of uh, scripture. His name was Albert Barnes. He was a, a graduate from Princeton Theological Seminary. And this is what he had to say in the matter. He said, if they, demons, might hold such faith and still remain in perdition, men might hold it and go to perdition. A man should not infer, therefore, because he has faith, even faith in God, which will fill him with alarm, that he therefore is safe. He must have a faith which, le- which will produce another effect altogether, that which will lead to a holy life. So he's saying the, the demons believe and tremble, and yet they're still going to be judged. And likewise, why do we think that it would be any different for us? That we can simply believe facts about God and yet never change us and yet somehow think that that will actually save us, that that faith is genuine. So James says, I will show you my faith by my works. We must look at the evidence of our lives to truly know whether our faith is actually real saving faith or not. And that's ultimately what James is advocating for. Now, what James has done, though, is he's presented some uncertainty. How how can we have peace with God? How can we actually know what that saving faith is? Because if I were to leave it right here, everybody would just go home and be like, man, I really hope I'm saved. But what James does is he now lays out what this is supposed to look like. And really, it's actually just ultimately what I just quoted to you. He said, we must have a faith which will produce another effect altogether, that which will lead to a holy life. And James gives two wonderful examples of this. First of which being Abraham. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by his works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So now James is moving into the positive examples. The examples of what genuine faith does in the life of somebody who truly believes the gospel. And he begins to help us understand the proper relationship between faith and works. 
Now, I want you to understand, James is using a different definition of justified than Paul is. He's simply saying that Abraham was justified, or he was proven to be right with God by what he did, by his works. And so James then it kind of explains his point. In verse 22, first he notices that works do not operate by themselves. Works cannot function without faith. Faith is the prerequisite. That is the qualifier for the works. Faith cooperates with works, much like a senior partner with the junior partner. The faith still comes first. That's still what saves people. Now, the works come from true saving faith. Now, notice faith needs works, which is Still verse 22. So engaging in works actually grows faith into maturity. It challenges and grows our faith. So when we take steps of faith, that's what he's talking about. That's that faith in action. Once again, faith comes before works. There's no true works without faith. Notice, the basic first reality of Abraham's relationship with God was what? Faith. It wasn't Abraham... You know, I want you to do all of these things, and Abraham did, and then develop faith. Abraham had faith, therefore he did. Now notice, works also have an essential part to play. Works prove the living reality of Abraham's faith in this scenario, and likewise for us as well. And it's actually the works that bring assurance that our professed faith brings the benefits promised by God. Peace with God friendship with God, being loved by God, God's righteousness imputed to us, that we actually truly have eternal life. And I want you to reflect on Abraham's story so you kind of better understand what's going on here. Think about the promise that Abraham was given. God promised to give Abraham descendants, right? Abraham believed that promise. He trusted in that promise. He was confident that God could deliver on that promise. That was faith. Now, what did the Lord ask of Abraham? I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac to me. God was putting Abraham's faith to the test. Now, keep in mind, this was the promised son. This was the son through whom God was going to give Abraham descendants. And yet God is saying, I want you to sacrifice your your son to me. The one that I promised, the one that I gave you, I want you to give him back to me. That's essentially what God was desiring of him. Now notice Abraham's response. He did what God asked him to do. He did as the Lord asked. He went to sacrifice his own son. And I find this very interesting because this further proves his faith. As he's leaving his attendants behind, the people that went with him and his son, ultimately to this point where Abraham was thinking he was going to sacrifice his son to the Lord, he leaves the attendants behind and actually says, hey, me and the boy will come back. Now, I find that very interesting. If you think you're going to sacrifice your son to the Lord, um, well, that implies that Isaac's going to die and that he would come back by himself. So why would he tell his attendants, um, we'll both return, both of us? And he wasn't lying to them. In fact, Hebrews 11:19 actually reveals what was going through Abraham's mind at this moment. And it says this, he considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead. He figured, you know what? The Lord gave me a promise. The Lord said I would have descendants through this son. So if he is asking me to kill Isaac, then surely he can just make him come back from the dead. Because that's how, that's the only way that this works out. He's so trusted in the promises of God that he just knew, all right, Lord, however, 
Whatever you're going to do, I just know that it's going to work. That you'll actually bring him back from the dead if need be. He trusted God. He, he took God's promise and he believed it as fact. He, he took God's speaking and considered it God's doing. That he believed God. See, Abraham did not simply believe in God. He believed God and so it is with faith. Faith is not simply just believing in God. We've already gone over that with the demons. Well, they believe there's a God. Plenty of people believe there's a God. But the difference was is that Abraham believed God. There's a difference between those two things. Abraham trusted God to the extent that he was willing to be obedient to what God would call him to do. See, faith is not simply believing God. It's believing God. True faith leads to obedience. And I really like what C.S. or uh, C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, had to say on this matter. He said, "Faith and works are bound in the same bundle. He that obeys God trusts God, and he that trusts God obeys God. He that is without faith is without works. He that is without works is without faith." He said those two things are inextricably linked. Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually had something similar to say on the matter. For those of you who don't know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian. Uh, and he resisted the Nazis. He was actually ultimately brought into an internment camp in Flossenburg, uh, where he was actually hung at 39 years old. But he had this to say. He said, only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. And that's what James is setting up here. Faith leads to obedience. If it's true faith, if it's real, if it's genuine, it actually leads to action. And so Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. As James says. Once again, James is using a different definition of Paul, than Paul. But Abraham was not saved by his works. I want to make that very clear. That's not what James is saying. Abraham was not saved by his works. He was saved by he, his faith and so he worked. Do you see the difference between those two things? The faith led to the works. The works did not lead to his salvation. And so it was the faith that actually gave value to the works. He trusted God, therefore he acted. Now notice verse 25, likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? So now he brings in another example. We have Rahab. This was a foreigner. She, she wasn't a Jew. She was in the city of Jericho. You guys remember Joshua? I always think about the VeggieTales movie, right? We have like all the, the little, you know, produce like wandering around the city and the French peas harassing them. Yeah, yeah, you guys all remember. But, I, but imagine there, there's these two spies that go into the city of Jericho and ultimately they're, they're about to get found out. And so what Rahab does is that because she trusted in God as a result of these people, she saw a duty to actually take care of God's people. And so she hid the spies. She understood her obligation to care for the needs of God's people, and so she hid them. And as a result, God spares her life and the lives of her family. See, Rahab had faith, and she acted on it. Her faith took personal risk. It was living. It acted based upon the knowledge that she had of the truth. Her, her faith was proven by her giving, by taking care of the needs of of these people, of these two spies. 
Once again, Charles Spurgeon had, had a great little one-liner. He said, if you want to give a hungry man a track, wrap it in a sandwich. See, our faith in the Lord should also be supported by the way that we treat other people. Our, our giving, our faith, should, should always be faith that gives time, effort, resources, energy. And as much as I hate to admit it in my own life, and it's true of every last one of our lives, our giving is only ever limited by our cramped affections and concerns. There's always a need to be met. In fact, there are so many needs that often need to be met that we actually have to prioritize those needs, don't we? I mean, everywhere we turn, we can find somebody who needs something. Our giving should always be aimed, though, at the greater cause of the gospel. See, our, our life should be backed up by what we do. And that's what James, once again, is advocating for. He, he's saying, you, you can't claim to be a child of God, and then, and then there's no evidence of it. You don't actually keep the, the two commandments that Jesus sets out. What did he set out? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. How can you do those two things if you don't actually act upon it? It's nice in theory, but he's calling for action. And so here's James' conclusion on this whole thing. He's given us these four illustrations. Once again, the first two are bad. We have um, really the wishful thinker. Then we have the demons. We have the one relates to people, the other relates to God. And then we have Abraham and how he relates to the Lord. He trusted God. And then we have Rahab and the way that she treated the spies, the way that she took care of God's people. And here's James's conclusion. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Unity of body and spirit is what I makes life possible. Wasn't talking to you, Siri. <laughs> Although I, Siri's dead too, so it doesn't really matter. But there's the same necessity for, for faith and works to be united together just as much as there is the necessity for the body and the spirit to be united together. That's the point that he's making. And so just as the body is dead without the spirit, so faith is dead without works. You can't have saving faith without works. You can't. It isn't possible. They're, they're vitally connected to one another. Faith without works is dead. Works without faith is dead. It's only faith that works. That is true saving faith. That's, that's the point James is getting at here in this passage of Scripture. And so now the question is, what would James actually look for as evidence of true faith? Now, I think it's pretty plain that the first two examples uh, are not what James would look for, right? He, he wouldn't be looking to the demons for faith. He wouldn't be looking to this wishful thinker guy to, uh, for examples of faith. But he'd be looking at the other two. The other two positive examples, Abraham and Rahab. And I want to point out the wonderful contrast between these two people. First of all, notice two things. Abraham was a major Bible figure. Rahab was a minor participant. Abraham was the father of the faithful. Rahab was a foreigner. Abraham was respected. Rahab was disreputable. Abraham was a man, Rahab was a woman. There, there's these huge contrasts between the two of them, and yet something wonderful is being pointed out as a result. There's a very comprehensive statement that's being made between these two people about the primary works of faith. It's 
that it's the, both the works of Abraham and it's the works of Rahab. And they apply to everyone without exception. Abraham held nothing back from God and trusted him explicitly. And Rahab selflessly took care of the needy and helpless regardless of the cost to herself. So let's look at what faith is based on James's example. First of all, faith is not simply just raising your hand at an altar call and then your life goes completely unchanged. You just go back to business as usual. And then 10 years later, you don't look any different. Faith is not simply believing in a designer and rejecting evolution. That's not what faith is. You could have all the arguments for creationism down backwards and forwards, and yet it doesn't mean that you know Christ. Not arguing against creationism, by the way. It'd be pretty difficult to do that and be a pastor. (laughs) But what he is saying is that faith is trusting God as he has revealed himself in Scripture to such a degree that it changes the very fabric of who you are. And this is very consistent with what Paul said. Some people have thought this isn't really consistent with Paul's writings. I think if I recall, Martin Luther at one point said that it was uh, the epistle of straw. But even Paul himself recognized this. He said in Galatians 5, 5 through 6, he says, For though the Spirit eagerly wait, or For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So notice what he's actually advocating against. He's saying works add nothing to your salvation. He's saying it doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. He says it doesn't matter whether you keep the law or don't in that sense. Because once again, he's talking about the Jews. They thought they were okay with God because they did all of these things. And he's saying, well, that doesn't count for anything as far as your salvation is concerned. But once again, notice what he said. Faith working through love. Faith, true saving faith, results in love, which what? Works. It's present in action. Then Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, notice, and this is one of the most famous Bible passages about grace alone, faith alone. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But notice this, for we are his workmanship, speaking of believers, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Then notice, going back to Galatians 5, 22 through 25, the very famous fruits of the Spirit, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also, what? Walk in the Spirit. There, there's action attached to this. It's not this passive thing where you believe in Christ and then you just go business as usual. He says there's, there's action, there's change that accompanies that saving faith. You, you should not walk away from that experience the same. Now James is not arguing for being perfect. He actually addresses that in the very beginning of, of his epistle. Recognizing that we still have that sin nature. We fight against it. We war against it. 
But what he is saying, though, is that there should be change. There should be transformation in the life of the believer. And if there's not, there's something seriously wrong. In very much the same way that when a child is born, think about it, we become born again. If you had a child that was just born and it wasn't growing, what would you think? Something is very wrong. And in very much the same way is true for believers. If we are born again and nothing changes, there's no growth, then what is it? Is it real? Is it true? So what is the life of faith? The life of faith is a life that respects the glory of Jesus. Think, think about Jesus. He was obedient to God and he had concern for needy sinners. So much so that Philippians 2, 7 through 8, Paul would write that he emptied himself and humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. It was a life of obedience to the greatest commandment. It was his love for God made manifest in his obedience to the word of God seen in his concern for the needs of man. Which is very much the same thing for us. It's our love of God made manifest in our obedience to the word and ultimately seen in our concerns for people. See, the life of faith is not simply just a private uh, transaction of the heart between you and God. But it's a life of obedience that holds nothing back from God. It's a life of concern which holds nothing back from human need. That's what faith looks like, if it's real, if it's true. And so my question for for those of you sitting in this room tonight is, which faith do you have? Is it the true living faith that actually has transformed who you are and is transforming you into the image of Christ, that though you struggle with your sin nature, you're still making those strides towards becoming more like him and actually doing what scripture says, which is to be holy for he is holy? Or is your faith dead? Is it in name only? Because there's only two groups in this. There's the dead and there's the living. The dead are those who profess to be Christians but have no evidence of the Holy Spirit transforming work in their lives. The ones that were the most Christian thing about them is that they call themselves Christians. They have little or no desire to serve God. They have little or no desire to know God. They're not characterized by love but rather selfishness. They very rarely give of themselves can't seem to serve at their church but they can find plenty of times to binge watch a show and make time for their hobbies their hearts break when their favorite sports team loses but at the same time they're unmoved by the fact that people perish without the gospel every day everything about the Christian life is a burden to them they simply just don't want to go to hell that's it That's not saving faith. That doesn't lead to eternal life. You can't have Jesus as Savior without him also being Lord. That's a package deal. And that word Lord, I want you to understand what it means because this is what God makes very plain to Moses. Lord means master, ruler, sovereign over all of creation. That's what Lord means. That means you get out of the driver's seat. 
That's why I don't like those bumper stickers that say Jesus is my co-pilot. He's not your co-pilot. He's your pilot. You're just a passenger. (laughs) You don't even get to backseat drive in this scenario. He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. But then there are those who are living. Those who profess to know Christ and their life is proof that the Holy Spirit is in them. And transforming them. It's active. Now notice, it's not finished. Paul recognized that. He said, I'm less than the least of all the saints. He says, I don't claim to have arrived. Nor does James, and nor does God expect that of us to be perfect. But there should be evidence. The living are also those who desire to know God. They desire to serve God. They're characterized largely by love, even albeit imperfectly. They actively serve the body of Christ with their gifts that God has given them, recognizing that those gifts don't belong to them, that God gave them to them to be used. They give of themselves and suffer for the sake of the gospel. Their hearts break for the lost. As a result, they preach the gospel wherever God puts them, whether it be here at a church, in their place of work, their schools, wherever they're at. They recognize that they have opportunity to bring people to the Lord and to tell them the truth. Those are the ones who have eternal life. Now my question is, which one are you? I'm not necessarily saying you have to possess all of these things perfectly. But if your life is largely characterized by group A, you should probably rethink if you're a child of God. And if your life is largely characterized by group B, then you're probably a believer. (laughs) Not saying that we don't have shortcomings. Paul recognized that. We all have weaknesses. We might fall short in a few of these things. Now, the wonderful thing is, and the wonderful news of the gospel, is that God is in the business of making the dead living, bringing those who were once in darkness into light, taking a man like Lazarus and calling him out of a grave, taking sinners who, may I remind you, were dead in their trespasses and sins, which includes all of us, and making them living, giving them new life, making them born again. So you don't have to stay that way if you find yourself in category A. If you're looking at your life realizing, man, maybe I don't know the God that I profess to know, it doesn't have to stay there. But I would desire to caution you because there is no such thing as casual Christianity. You don't see Jesus teach that anywhere. Jesus didn't say, "Eh, if you want to be my disciple, just believe that you are, do your own thing, when you feel like it, come follow me. It's not the statement that Jesus made. Jesus said, if you desire to be my disciple, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. There's a radical life change. The, The gospel is a call of radical transformation. Now the wonderful thing is, is, You're not the one who does the transforming work in you. That's a work of God. But you do have to submit to him. It's an act of humility and saying, Lord, I surrender control. I want you to lead my life. And I'm going to do things your way. It's a call truly for the dead to be brought to life. Now my question is, are you willing to walk in new life? Are you willing to truly walk in new life? Because you can't. 
you can follow Christ with simple faith. But that know this, that faith will result in you not being the same person. I mean, you'll still be you with your giftings and talents and generally your personality, but you're going to find very quickly that you're going to stop enjoying certain things that you enjoyed, specifically things related to sin. You're going to find that your desires and those things that you love will more than likely change. What you concern yourself will change. That's why I find it interesting because we always say, you know, come as you are. But if I would... If I could, I would add something to that is uh, come as you are, but know that you won't leave as you are. You won't. You're going to be changed. That's what the gospel does. That's why the gospel is so wonderful is that you cease to be a, a sinner who is dead in their trespasses and sins and you become this sinner who is saved by the wonderful grace of God and you actually, your, your life is transformed. You stop seeking after sin and you begin to seek after the things of the Lord. And yes, that's a growing process. But it does require walking in new life. And so my question to you is, will you walk in that new life? And if so, walk. Prove it. Be as God has called you to be. If you desire to know him, know him. But walk with him. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow him. Father, we just thank you for your goodness towards us. God, thank you that you desire for us to to know you. And God, thank you that you actually give us the comfort of knowing what faith is. God, thank you when we we, maybe we doubt. God, whether we're, we're your child or not, we can actually look at our lives and go, wow, I'm not the same person I used to be. My, my cares and concerns have changed. Those things that were sinful that I felt like I could get away with. God, those things that I enjoyed, they're not enjoyable anymore. And now I have a care and concern for the things of your kingdom. God, thank you that you've given us proof that we are your child. God, by simply looking at our lives and what you've done in us. And so, God, I just pray for those that came in here with doubt about their own salvation. God, though they actually be saved, God, I pray that you would remove those doubts. God, that they'd be able to look at what you've done in their life and they'd be able to see the difference of who they were and who they are now. But God, I also likewise praise, pray for those, God, who, who came here who think that they were saved. They, they bought into a cheap grace, God, a cheap version of the gospel that doesn't save. God, I pray that you would make that clear to them, that they would turn and that they would follow you, that they would desire newness of life, that it wouldn't simply just be fire insurance, God, where they desire the Savior, but, but not the sanctification. And, and God, I just pray that you would not let them e- even sleep tonight without being right with you. That, God, they would come to the knowledge of the truth, recognizing that you give us wonderful blessings of being able to have peace with you, newness of life. God, ultimately, we get to spend eternity with you in your goodness. And so, God, I just pray that you would be with us. God, would you help us to always find that proper balance between faith and works that, God, we would never think that we can earn it, and yet at the same time, we would never take advantage of that grace. And so, God, we love you. We thank you. 
And God, I just pray that you continue to do a work in us. And it's in your name we pray all of these things. Amen.